0: Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast, where we illuminate life science career opportunities outside of academia through the experiences of those who have been there before. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media and visit us at thehopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. This episode is part of the Boston Biotech Series, produced in collaboration with the Professional Development and Career Office at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. In this series, we talk with alumni who work in the Boston Biotech Ecosystem, if you are a Johns Hopkins student, we encourage you to join the online Boston Biotech community on the OneHop platform to connect with the podcast's guests, as well as other JHU alumni who work in Boston. You can find the link on our website at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com or in the show notes. My name is Joe, and I'm joined here with my co-host.
1: Hi, I'm Jenna Glatzer.
0: Our guest today is Dr. Michael Metalkovich. Mike is the Vice President of Equity Research at Cowan, a diversified financial services firm that operates as a broker dealer and investment manager. Prior to joining Cowan, he was a scientist in the Johns Hopkins Drug Discovery Center at the School of Medicine here at Johns Hopkins University. While at Hopkins, he also served as an analyst at Johns Hopkins Tech Ventures in the Commercialization Strategy Group and co-founded a company, Andargo Pharmaceuticals. Mike received his PhD from Vanderbilt University. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Hi, Joe. Hi, Jenna. Hi. First, can you just maybe give us an overview of your position at Cowan and a little bit more about what Cowan does and the background of equity research?
2: Sure. Um, So, I work on the large cap pharma um, equity research team on the research side of of Cowan. So, we cover uh, the sort of largest multinational um, pharmaceutical companies. Uh, and, as equity research analysts, our job is essentially to um analyze the uh you know investability of those companies and to try to provide the information that our clients need to determine which um stocks they find most attractive for their portfolios
0: so day to day what what does your job really look like
2: um so it's uh it's uh, it's kind of weirdly like journalism in some ways. Um, so a big part of my job is to track these companies' news flow and to stay on top of the developments that come out of the companies that we cover um, with an eye toward uh, what is investment relevant. So, um, of course, for pharmaceutical companies, that generally means um, staying on top of the data that they're producing for their various assets that they have in development um, and trying to contextualize it and provide insight into whether uh, those data are good, bad, uh, what implications they have for the um, sales and earnings growth of the company. Um, and and doing that is sort of a, a multifaceted problem because uh, you know, they're generating data across multiple therapeutic areas, multiple um, drug modalities, and so it's hard to be an expert in any given one. So we, we have to leverage um, a bunch of different uh, experts and um, try to come up with a reasonable uh, a reasonable sense of whether um, you know the news
0: flow out of a given company is is um, attractive or not. <laughs> Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I think we'll get into some more of the intricacies of equity research later on in the interview. But first, I'd like to get a sense for your scientific background. Now, you got a PhD from Vanderbilt, and you went on to take a position as a scientist in the Johns Hopkins Drug Discovery Center. So did you plan on working in academic science for uh, you know a, a, a long career, or, or did you have other intentions when you came to Hopkins? Um, no, so I was I
2: was still um, considering academic science as a career when I joined uh, I joined Dr. Barb Slusher's lab. She runs the Johns Hopkins Drug Discovery Group um, as a postdoc, and I was still considering academic science as a career, but probably um, only and so only only as potentially, um, in like a drug discovery lab or a translational lab, kind of similar to the one that Barb runs. Um, so, you know, for the most part I was leaning toward, um, different career path options already by that point. And that was probably true even pretty early on in my PhD. I was relatively, um, convinced that, uh, academic science was probably not for me. Um, if it was mostly focused on basic science, um, but that said, I wasn't totally sure what options were available to me. Uh, the podcast you guys are doing is exactly the kind of thing I wish I'd listened to, like eight years ago or so. Um, but uh, yeah, so I I was always leaning more toward kind of non traditional career paths, uh, but with but but keeping open the option of academic science career.
1: And for people that aren't familiar, can you talk a little bit about what um, Johns Hopkins Drug Discovery does? Because it's a fairly it's been around for a while now but it's still a fairly new program to hopkins and i understand it's still pretty innovative um among different universities
2: yeah and you should uh, you should definitely uh have barb on at some point or talk to her she has a, a really amazing career trajectory um mm-hmm. but so the the group kind of operates a little bit kind of like a sort of like a small biotech or farm or RD and d unit kind of embedded at hopkins so uh it has sort of full PKPD capabilities full kind of in vivo drug testing capabilities um full in vitro um compound screening capabilities and assay development capabilities and also a team of medicinal chemists who can you know kind of do the run the gamut of um uh lead generation and and optimization from a medicinal chemistry standpoint so it's pretty cool. It's it sort of can do everything that um, that a really small biotech or that a smallish biotech or or a, a R and D unit at pharma can do. Um, and then in terms of its academic pursuits, which uh, it also has, there are uh, several targets that are of interest to the group. And frankly, the last couple of years, since I haven't been there, I'm not totally sure what the the latest and greatest is coming coming out of Barb's lab. But I'm sure there's a lot of really cool stuff. Uh, when I was there. Uh, There were uh, two or three kind of key targets, mostly in the brain, um, but not exclusively uh, that were of interest, or at least for the projects that I worked on. Um, And there's a whole team of postdocs and grad students at any given time who work in the lab that pursue academic questions, uh, mostly with translational relevance. Um, But we do a lot of, or did a lot of partnering with other labs that had perhaps more basic science approaches. Um, And so sort of target IED, target generation, lead generation would sort of be um, kind of outsourced, I guess, if you want to put it that way, to, to more basic science-focused labs that we would then partner with and do a lot of the um, more translational work to access those targets and, and try to answer both basic science questions using pharmacology, but also um, potentially lead to uh, agents that were of interest from a translational or, or maybe, uh, you know if you're lucky, a commercial perspective.
1: Yeah. And from what I understand, you are an example of one of the commercial successes that came out of this. But I think the founding story behind your company, Adarga Pharmaceuticals, is pretty interesting. Um, could you talk a little bit about how that came to pass and what the company is focused on?
2: Sure. Um, so Adarga is kind of an, an outlier in the sense that we... It was it was sort of founded on a serendipitous finding that we kind of kind of made by accident. <laughs> um, so it was not actually uh, sort of a a collaboration with a, a basic science lab that that bore fruit. Although there's examples of that as well in Barb's lab, but um, really it was stems from um, we were and Barb has long been in her lab and both uh when she was at pharma and in academia and at, at Hopkins has been interested in targeting a particular protein in the brain called GCP2, which is uh responsible uh for generating some of the extracellular glutamate that's in the brain. Glutamate is a the primary excitatory neurotransmitter. So there's multiple potential applications of inhibiting this enzyme um related to diseases where you have an excess of glutamate. Um, the problem is that the sort of prototypical inhibitors for this this enzyme are highly polar, so they they generally don't get into the brain very well so um an approach that uh Barb's group and collaborators have taken is to try to make pro drugs of some of these prototypical inhibitors that can f- kind of ferry the drug in a more lipophilic form into the brain and and you know if hopefully across uh the gut first and then into the brain and then um and have it be converted into the active metabolite, which would inhibit the enzyme. Um, so, you know, Johns Hopkins Drug Discovery has kind of a suite of these compounds that uh, get tested periodically in different contexts for different disease areas. And um, and uh, in the course of that, which I was involved with at one point for one of our projects, we discovered a compound that um, seemed to have. Preferential distribution to um, not the brain, <laughs> but to uh, the kidneys and some other organs of interest, and uh, effectively, Barb said, "Well, this is unique. We haven't seen this before. Um, what is is there a reason we would want to get a GCP two inhibitor into the kidneys?" And so I kind of went looking and and found that there might be a reason you want to do that because GCP two outside of the brain. Um, is actually referred to as PSMA in the prostate cancer literature. And that's because uh, it gets highly upregulated in prostate cancer cells and has for a while now been um, a target of uh, drug development aimed at trying to get um, either chemotherapeutics or radiotherapeutics specifically into prostate cancer cells. Um, One of the problems with that approach, though, has been that GCP two or PSMA is also endogenously expressed in the kidneys, and so if you take that approach, typically one of the off-target um, toxicities that you can see some of the time is is kidney damage or or damage to some of the other organs that express the um, enzyme. So we figured we have a, a potential um, uh, compound that could be married to those cytotoxic um, approaches where if you administer them together, you might be able to shield the kidneys effectively uh, by co-administering our compounds with uh, either a cytotoxic or, or radiotherapeutic compound targeted to PSMA, where um, our compound would preferentially distribute to the kidneys, block uh, binding and uptake of the cytotoxic agents there. Um, but not to the tumor uh where it would allow for uptake of the radiotherapeutic to the tumor. So that was that was it, it was kind of a, an accidental finding and and um we confirmed some of the PK uh and and we ended up um patented the compound and the approach and um ultimately outlicensed it to a new a new pump that was formed called the Darga. Uh it was Barb um Rana Race who runs the uh, pharmacokinetic group at um Johns Hopkins drug discovery and myself as a three co-founders and um, yeah and we, we pursued it's it's sort of funding and development from there as an outside entity as well as uh, continuing to look academically.
0: That's a really interesting story and and I, I find it really interesting how it came about in a relatively short time that that you were actually at Hopkins and you have this experience and and you did some work as an analyst in the commercialization strategies group with Johns Hopkins Tech Ventures, which is the tech transfer arm of, of Johns Hopkins. So given what you've told us, it seems like your skills would be really valuable, it's a diverse skill set, but but especially valuable in you know early stage ideation and, and development of companies and products. Um, but instead, you you chose to focus on public markets and, and equity research. So, how did you initially come about applying for the role at Cowen, and how did you land on equity research as opposed to maybe other careers at the intersection of business and science?
2: Sure. So, uh, if I can be completely honest, one of the reasons I pursued uh, the role at Cowen is because um, you know around the time we founded Adarga is when my my son was born, who's now three and a half or so, and I found out that having a baby makes your tolerance for risk kind of plummet <laughs> so so uh you know it, it felt like um something a little bit more sure and a little bit more stable, and history made find that it was a terrible decision on my part, but um it was something I needed to do, so that was the reason I started Cal and Callan, um is a, a firm that has a great reputation in, in biotech and healthcare, uh, equity research was a, a function that I had only recently become aware of, frankly. Um, but pretty immediately became interested in it as a career path. Um, and so it was kind of just a confluence of factors at the right time that, that led me to, to account. Um, but, um, as opposed to earlier investment, um, roles, uh, part of it's just um, pragmatic, you know, there's not a ton of those available and I, I didn't necessarily go looking in earnest. Um, uh, that's part of it. Um, part of it is the the risk thing that I talked about. <laughs> so that's, that's part of it too. Um, uh, yeah. And then, sorry, I kind of blanked on the second part of your question.
0: Yeah, no, I, 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 think you, I think you answered it well. It was, it was sort of why equity research as opposed to other careers. and And I think what we don't, always considers that, um, things happen in our lives or in our careers that, um, that change how we perceive what, what we think that we should be doing. And, um, you know, I think as scientists, especially PhD level scientists, uh, we find that our skills are, are useful in many different disciplines. So, so I appreciate that, that honesty in terms of how you came to this career. Um, yeah. but, but were you interested in Public markets and investing generally before you started uh, pursuing roles in equity research, uh, maybe just as a hobby or, or personally.
2: Yeah, yeah, and, I, and so I can give you a more fulsome kind of answer too. So I guess a more big picture. I I was considering multiple career paths, so I looked into consulting as a lot of PhD. I mean, you guys, I know you talked to a lot of folks um, like myself who um, landed in different kind of non-traditional. Roles uh after their PhDs. And I've listened to a lot of your episodes, they're all really good. Um, so I, I am not telling you anything that you or your listeners don't already know, but I thought of kind of all the 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 ones that you hear about. Um, you know, consulting. Um uh, I mean venture capital would be super cool, but like I said, that's kind of kind of difficult to find roles like that. Um, but or investing in general, uh, on the buy side. I looked at um uh, tech transfer as a, a potential route. Um, I looked at. I, I considered staying in, in academia, um, so I kind of looked at everything. <laughs> probably there's probably an example of every single thing. Oh, I looked at you know just moving to biotech or, or pharma as on the R and D side as a scientist, um, which a lot of my friends have done. Um, so ec- equity research, uh, it I like it because it offers you know for my particular personality, and, and it might be true of um, some of you talk to. Uh, it sort of allows you to kind of zoom in and zoom out you know, uh, on the science, at, not at will, you kind of have to say zoomed out a lot of the time, but um, at times you will get a question where you have to dig very deeply into um, the mechanism of a given drug and the target it engages, how it works, why it works, whether it would be different in a very specific way from a competitor molecule. And then at times you have to just know, you know what are the 10 drugs that are used to treat striasis or you know, um, and you get to zoom back out, and so th- that's always been attractive to me. Academic science, and probably something you've heard from a lot of um, people that either you speak with or that listen to your podcast, is that you know one of the things that's tough for some folks is you have to you have to specialize so acutely to the point that you know you can spend an entire career answering a very very narrow question, and some people are really really good at that, and some people. Um, are, are not as good at it and i i found myself to be somebody who's probably not as good at it so uh so that's why i looked elsewhere and equity research offers the the opportunity to um sometimes dip your toe in that water and then at other times be able to zoom out which which i like um so uh that that's why equity research i did uh invest a little bit just for fun like you know really small potatoes um mainly as a just as a means to to or as a, an excuse to follow these companies because, you know, biotech does really cool stuff and, um and pharma. uh And it's really fun to kind of pay attention to it and see what actually ends up. You know, it's really where the rubber meets the road. At the end of the day, a lot of what happens in labs is um, very pie in the sky as, as you know. Um, And so the rubber meets the road when a company has to go through all the regulatory hoops and all the clinical hoops and actually show that something works and then that they can actually That doctors actually want to use it and then it's actually good for patients and that they can actually get somebody to pay for it. So, um, it's really fun to see how that comes together in biotech and public markets, uh, public companies is where that happens. Um, so it's fun to pay attention to those companies and it's fun to, uh, why they might be a good investment or not. Um, so I was kind of doing it for fun a little bit, paying attention to, um, you know, kind of doing what I do now for work, uh, but um, lower stakes, I guess. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's an interesting perspective. So for two-part question, for individuals with an advanced degree, PhD, MD, uh, maybe even a master's, what uh, types of roles are you applying for in uh, sell-side equity research? And, and what's uh, a, uh, the interview process like? And how is it unique?
2: Yep. So you'd be looking for associate roles and in investment banking world, um, it's nice because it's the like titles and roles are like highly, like the naming is conventional. It's highly regimented. So for equity research, you'd be looking for a role called associate. Um, And uh, the uh, interview process is probably, I assume it's different. I mean, I should caveat everything I say with I I basically only interviewed with Cowan um and took the job right when they offered it in part because I knew the firm and I knew that they had a good reputation. Um, And the the particular analyst that I work for has a a longstanding reputation. So it was sort of a kind of a (laughs) no-brainer. But uh, so I don't actually know uh, what the interview process is like elsewhere. And, and I suspect it was probably pretty different from mine, to be honest. So I can't speak too much to uh, in generalities, but for me, and you know, some elements of this are probably standard across the industry, but uh, you know, an introductory phone call in this case uh, uh, there was no like intermediary recruiter, but I think that's pretty common that you would talk to like a recruiter first. Um, And then uh, you know, talk to a couple other people at the firm, more of like a personality type interview. Um, And then at some point, I mean, obviously you don't want to sound stupid at any point during your interview while you're talking to people, but at some point you probably will do some sort of a project or something um, that's more formal. Uh, I know that it's, I know that people, I know this because people told me before I started interviewing that a pretty common thing is you do, you have to do a stock pitch. Um, You know, so... That's one thing that I think people often are asked to do, but some kind of a more formal project to demonstrate um, your capabilities and and how they might translate to the role is something you could expect. Um, Yeah, I think that's probably basically what it was like for me and probably what you could expect. Uh, How rigorous or how uh, involved or difficult probably varies significantly firm to firm would be my guess.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned that if you're applying directly out of grad school or, you know, with an advanced degree, you'd be coming in for an associate role. And correct me if I'm wrong, but when you're working under an analyst, it's kind of like the mentor-mentee dynamic that you might face in graduate school. Given that kind of uh, sort of similar dynamic, how do you decide whether or not an analyst is a good fit for you to work under?
2: Uh, That's a good question. And it is very similar in the sense that, um, you know, the analyst's and uh, equity research kind of all sort of fiefdoms unto themselves in, in a lot of ways. Um, and, and what they do, um, they sort of, to some extent brand themselves independent of the firm and, you know, you see analysts kind of go be- between firms, not, is not uncommon. So, um, and that's kind of similar to like PIs where, uh, you know, probably the PI you work for is, is in a lot of ways more important career wise than, um, the school that you're at. Um, So that's kind of that element is sort of similar in the two. And then uh, to your question, trying to figure out who to work for, uh, it's you sort of met with the same problems, which is that, you know, you don't really know if if the person you're um, signing up to work for is going to be a good mentor or not, um, because you don't really know until you start. Uh, But that said, I think... um, some kind of general things to look for would be one again, from like a career perspective, like what their reputation is, is probably important. So, um, just how long have they been doing it? How long they've been an analyst for? Uh, if if you can find there for Wall Street, there's a lot of sort of um, there's different like ratings. Institutional Investor is one that does like ratings of analysts. So you could look at that, but um, that won't necessarily tell you how good of a mentor they are. It'll just kind of tell you if they have a good reputation. But that's important career-wise. Um, and then uh, I guess if you like like joining a lab, if you have the opportunity to talk to other people that work for that person, trying to get a sense one, just how long have they worked for them? Is there a ton of turnover underneath them? Um, those are always bad signs. Uh, yeah. And then you know just personality fit when you talk to them. And then if you know if they make you jump through a bajillion hoops, that's probably a bad sign. If they're having you do like fifty projects and um, you know, at some point, it's just uh, sadistics. So. <laughs> 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 you know, uh, I don't know. I don't know how uh, that is as advice, but it's kind of. I would say that your premise that it's it's similar to picking a PI is very true. So whatever tactics or skills or lessons you learned from picking your PI, I would apply them to this as well. And some in a lot of cases, you probably won't have the luxury of a choice. You're going to probably get an offer, and that'll be the only one, and and you have to take it. So that might be. It might get decided for you.
0: <laughs> Skipping ahead a bit, you start as an associate, and then eventually, uh, you know, if if you're good and you stick around, you you work your way up to being either an analyst or or a vice president or or uh, whatever the the firm may call that position. But but eventually, you end up with your own coverage, so specifically stocks that you're responsible for following. And I'm wondering, how do you choose your coverage universe, and, and how do you kind of work with other analysts on your team at Cowen or, or whatever uh, bank you're working for to, to really design your coverage and, and, and be successful in that?
2: Uh, so that's a very good question, and unfortunately, I'm a terrible person to answer it. Because I sort of have not yet embarked on that phase of my career, um, to some extent, um, I can give you kind of a a general answer, um, and it and it, it actually highlights an important distinction that would probably be of interest to people who are looking at this as a career, which is um, the the industry you cover matters um, for that very thing. So, uh, as I said, I, I cover large cap pharma. So one of the ways that uh, sort of budding analysts could pick up coverage is through new companies that go public that uh, didn't exist yesterday on the public markets and they they do today, and somebody needs to cover them. Um, uh, and when you cover large cap pharma, that doesn't happen so frequently because you know they have to be large cap, and they typically don't. Um, be, you know, we're not. There's not a new Novartis formed every every couple of years, so. Um, so the opportunity to pick up your own coverage is is more limited if you cover large cap uh than if you cover biotech or smaller mid cap biotech there's some other differences i'd be happy to, to go into if you like um but that's one thing uh to, that your question highlights but then in terms of how that gets uh decided so again i'm very, i'm pretty ignorant about this so feel free to to ignore everything I'm going to the next two minutes, but um, basically it's a it's a decision between sort of the more upper management in the firm, the the people that are the heads of of research as a whole. There's a strategy as to um, who covers what and why that um, is not entirely driven by just what you are interested in or feel you're expert in, but often um, people kind of find their niche. So um, if you take biotech as an example. Um, you know at Cal we have several biotech analysts, and you'll find when you look at the company coverage across them that certain disease areas um are uh the companies that that um operate in those disease areas might be more likely to be covered by a given analyst than another because that analyst just is is more expert they have the relationships with the k o l s in that disease area. They just they know the landscape better because they've been covering these other companies. So that's one way that it often gets divided up. At least in biotech, is um, by disease area. Uh, Some people are more expert than others, and so if you work for that analyst as an associate, you yourself would become more expert in that disease area, and that might be uh, a a more natural fit. Um, Some of it, I think, is just opportunistic. You know, one of the ways that. Uh, a new analyst can pick up coverages uh, through the departure of a previous analyst. Um, And, and so, you know, if you get promoted from within to fill a spot that opens up, then that you would kind of, you know, there's some shuffling that would go on, but then you would probably pick up a lot of the companies that that person covered. So that would just be opportunistic. Um, So that's kind of it. But then there's also, I think, you know, on the part of the companies, they, they generally, uh, they want to be covered by somebody who's a known entity and, and has a, a reputation on Wall Street. So I think to some extent, there's, uh, I don't know, I don't, it's not formal, but I think there's, a, there's you know, generally uh, how the reception of the companies to a new analyst is probably considered. But again, I'm not even sure if that's true or if that's even legal, so maybe... <laughs> <laughs> maybe not, <laughs> but again, I'm speaking from kind of a place of ignorance here.
0: Yeah, and since you brought it up, uh, touching on some of the differences between covering small mid-cap pharma uh, or biotech versus large pharma, and, and I know that your experience is in large pharma, but but maybe if you could touch on some of those key differences, what, what are you looking for in the analysis of a company uh, that that is, say, you know, Less than a, a a billion dollar market cap versus one that's like a, a Pfizer or a Novartis.
2: Yeah. So the the biggest difference is the the one I mentioned, which is that you know, if you cover biotech, then there's especially recently um, the the formation and um, and new public offerings from multiple companies over the course of a year that need to get covered. So uh, research plays a role um, in research has a, a a relationship with banking, the banking side of the investment bank that's highly, highly regulated. Um, but research does play a role in in vetting companies that banking may have an interest in establishing relationship with. So that's something that you would do more frequently, typically as a biotech analyst, uh, vetting IPOs, um, that you might do less as a, a or a, um, associate covering larger companies, uh, that's one difference. another difference is just the nature of um, the expertise that you have to employ to cover the two sectors so um, large cap pharma have uh very complicated financial statements because they they actually have finances <laughs> um, so you know they they have a lot of product they they generate a lot of cash um, and they have um, financial statements that need to be analyzed to try to um uh, get a sense of their uh, growth outlook. So uh, that's a, a completely different skill set from what a PhD in biomedical sciences is, is trained to have. Um, and it's one that if you cover biotech, you also need to learn, but it's it's perhaps slightly less relevant only because those companies are often pre-revenue. Um, and so it's it's a lot, the, the fate of that company and its stock is much more tied to um, the likelihood that a given um, agent asset and development is on sound scientific and biological footing um, at least for the next two three four years then then that that asset is commercially viable Um, so that that's that's a little bit different than pharma where often the relevance of a product in the portfolio is relatively small until it's pretty late stage and then Really, it's the clinical science that matters that you need to get used to analyzing, um, and also some of the commercial questions about launching drug that become more relevant. So, two slightly different lenses that gets applied probably.
0: Yeah, and one last sort of equity research intricacy that I'm interested in is investigating more macro trends. Right, Uh, something like read through from a certain data set that might impact evaluation for another company or the overall mergers and acquisitions environment, uh, something like a global pandemic that obviously <laughs> ha- can, can impact the, the market generally. Um, how do firms and individuals look at these macro trends and, and how much does that play into your analysis of a given company's valuation?
2: Um, so it probably varies a lot by firm um, and by analyst. Um, you know uh it's certainly not unimportant. it's sort of the backdrop uh, over which these companies are operating, so questions like um, the political environment and questions around uh, the potential that the u s government might take any kind of action around drug pricing is sort of one of these questions that sits in the background all the time um, you know probably for the entire career of uh, my for my boss's entire career and he's been doing, um, he's been doing his job for uh, over a couple of decades. I think it's been a relevant question that it just doesn't really go away. So it's important, but um, to some extent, some of those factors, because they're sort of ever present and it, it's sort of, um, it makes it harder uh, to analyze or perhaps less, less important in the sense that it's, it's applicable to the, industry sector wide. And so it maybe kind of comes out in the wash, but, um, that, you know, that again, that how you approach that question is probably varies, varies analyst to analyst, um, and also investor to investor. So how much they care about that varies. It's more something that you would consider as a backdrop to how companies operate, um, on an individual basis.
1: Getting back to sort of the bigger picture, um, if you don't want to become an analyst in like going down that route, um, what are some of the other roles that you could fill if you want to stay maybe in like public equity strategy?
2: Sure. Um, so pretty I think a pretty common route that uh, associate, like associate level equity research people take is to go to the buy side, so mm-hmm. to um, go to a, a asset management firm of some type um, and be an analyst for them. Um. So that's that's not uncommon. Um, you, I, I've seen folks go to venture capital, uh, which is again, you know, on the buy side, but early stage investments. Um, I think kind of jumping from a firm is not uncommon, but you know, depends on your goals. I guess what you're trying to achieve. Uh, in, in, in jumping from a firm, staying on sell side equity research, um, <clears throat> people uh, go back to industry not uncommonly i think so you know if you cover pharma or biotech it's not uncommon it might ultimately take a job with pharma or biotech uh the types of roles that i've seen people do is stuff like business development or competitive intelligence or like portfolio strategy type type roles um if if you're more senior you know the, you, you'll often see press releases uh you know, so-and-so analyst becomes the CFO of, of this new biotech. That's, that's common for like more senior people. Um, oh, investor relations is another role, a function that I think people from equity research on the sell side can do. Those are kind of your counterparts at the companies themselves. So you, you generally establish pretty close relationships with those people and, and get a sense of what their job is like. So I think it's it's a, sort of a natural um, transition to move into that role. Um. Yeah, I think that's kind of what I've kind of what I've seen. There's it's kind of, you know, all all the consulting, all the stuff that uh a person who might be interested in pursuing equity research in the first place might also be looking at, all those other roles and things that they are interested in, those are still kind of those doors are still kind of open after you do equity research and, and you might even be a better candidate for those things.
1: Yeah, that that's a really great point. It's once you start looking in this universe and this space, you realize how much. Or how many transferable skills there are, not only you know coming from PhD or whatever advanced degree you have, but also within the roles themselves and the connections you make. And it is a very small world, <laughs> yeah.
0: too.
1: Yeah. Um, that being said, are there any specific experiences, internships, or other pieces of advice you would give to students that are thinking about this uh, field, or even early career uh, researchers that are thinking of a career transition? Uh,
2: sure. Well, first, congratulations for learning equity research is probably before I did (laughs) my (laughs) my PhD. The, I think one kind of sort of an easy, an easy one to recommend is to check out tech transfer offices. Um, At Hopkins, they have a a more formalized um, internship slash, you know, uh, sort of subcontracting job that you can do with them. I think a lot of universities, I don't know who all listens to this, but a lot of universities have similar type things, but definitely check check out the tech transfer office because that's kind of the most, um, that's the, the most direct way you can get experience within the context of the university with these types of concepts, you know, evaluating science as a potential uh, uh, for its commercial opportunity, which is effectively the job of equity research um, for pharma and biotech. So that's the one I would say is easy. Then the other one is there's all kinds of clubs and, and extracurricular stuff, you know, that I'm sure you guys have talked about or, or um, interviewed people who are involved with those things to, to take a look at. And I think some are more involved than others. Um, And, and I I think I did, uh, there's, there's pro bono consulting again, often what you're tasked with is evaluating a given drug or target for, it's commercial viability, kind of the same thing you do for equity research and these other jobs. So uh, that's something to th- take a look at. Um, yeah. And then, um, you know, talking to people that are doing the types of jobs that you think you might be interested is is always good. There's definitely diminishing returns at some point. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, at least uh, getting a sense for, for those people. And, and people generally are happy to help, help out. Um, so definitely talking to more people is, is never a bad thing.
0: I think one of the things that you mentioned earlier that it it would be helpful is, is just following companies, right? It's something that you can do on your own and, and something that, you know, maybe doesn't take a whole lot of effort, but just getting used to seeing, uh, you know, filings that, that biotech companies put out and understanding the outcomes of data, uh, both clinical and preclinical data those, those are things that you can do without even having to be involved with a club or a specific person. It it, it just relies on you. It's a very good
2: point. I should have said that. <laughs> <laughs> that one well, in instead of everything I said.
1: <laughs> we're getting better at this as we go on. <laughs> yeah,
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining us and taking the time to talk to us about you know, equity research and your own career path. And I think just you gave some really wonderful advice to all of us and our listeners.
2: Yeah, happy to. Um, thanks for inviting me. Uh, you guys have an awesome podcast. I really enjoy it. So I'm looking forward to the next episode.
1: Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter updates about upcoming to- to- guests and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm Jenna Glasser.
0: And I'm Joe Varely.
1: Thank you for listening.